portion of God's Word that He has set apart for us this evening is John chapter 16, beginning in verse number 23. John 16, in verse number 23. We've been in the farewell discourse. This last sermon, if you want to call it that, discourse that the Savior is giving to His disciples on the night in which He is betrayed. And we've come almost to the end of it. It's been over 20 weeks we've been here. And in John 16, in verse number 23, we are immediately confronted with a phrase that appears very tricky to us and is going to need some careful attention. I think that you'll agree with me. And so John 16 and verse number 23, I'll read down through verse number 28. That'll be our text this evening, these verses 23 through 28. This is the Word of God. And in that day, ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, He will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time cometh, when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs... But I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day, ye shall ask in my name. And I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loveth you. Because ye have loved me. And have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world, and go to the Father. Amen. Well, I think that you can imagine just right away here the difficulties of the passage that we just read. There are a couple, aren't there? I mean, at first read... That first verse of verse 20, the first sentence of verse 23, what does this mean? In that day ye shall ask me nothing. But then he goes right into talking about asking. And then what does he mean at the end of the passage where he says that in that day he's not going to pray the Father for you? And I thought the, the main role of the glorified Son of God was to make intercession for us. And so we've got some potentially tricky things to go through this evening, and we'll need to be careful as we go through, and we need the Lord's help as we go through this portion of God's Word together. I want to remind you of what Jesus has been saying all through this discourse, and especially what he's been saying lately to his disciples. He's preparing them for his going back to the Father. That's going to mean, as we saw last week, short-term sorrow. You see that in verse number 22. And now, 
you therefore have sorrow. But it will eventually issue in a joy which no man can take from them. And you see at the end of verse 22, I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and and your joy no man taketh from you. And all of this is attached to his going to his Father, which is one of the major subject areas of the farewell discourse. He is over and over. This is how he began the farewell discourse. I go to prepare a place for you. And they did not really understand what he was talking about when he said that he was going away. He's going to the Father. And Jesus wants them to understand the necessity of this and the benefit and blessing that is going to come to them because of this. But he's limited in the way that he can talk about it because of what he's pointed out there in verse number 12 of John 16. He could be saying this clearer. He's intentionally using vague, veiled language, talking about going to his father, departing, kind of vague language, because he knows they're not able to bear the details of what's about to happen. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, how that when we see some of these vague statements of Jesus and they tend to maybe at first kind of frustrate us and we want him to be a little more plain, a little more clear. We've got to understand that he's often doing this mercifully because we're not able to bear the full revelation. And that was the case for these men. They were not able to, at this point, bear what was going to happen in the next 24 hours. And so he speaks speaks veiled about going to his father. But we know that that going to his father set in motion a whole series of events. How he's going to his father by means of an obedient, sacrificial death as a ransom for many. How he's going to rise from the dead and vindicate who he was and all that he had said. How that he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father and be exalted to that place of honor and glory. That the return of him to the Father was expedient for them. It was to their advantage that these things were going to happen. They couldn't see that now. Temporarily, it's going to mean sorrow for them. They can't see the joy, the the blessing that's going to flow from his going to his father. But he's assuring them and he's calling on them, trust me in the meanwhile. Trust me through this. His going to his father meant the vindication of all he had said and done. It meant the sending of the spirit as their other comforter. It meant that they could pray with confidence. It meant that they would receive power for ministry. It meant that they had a place prepared for them. 
It meant that he would return in like manner in the way that he departed. It was expedient. It was advantageous for them. And he's speaking to them about that in this portion of the farewell discourse. There's a lot about the coming days that is going to fill them with sorrow. So Jesus is calling on them. Trust me in the meanwhile. That's where we were last week. That was our theme last week. Trusting God in the meanwhile. Look expectantly for the coming day when your sorrow will be turned to joy. And last week when we were talking about, okay, so when is it? When they see Jesus and their sorrow is turned to joy. What's he talking about? And we, we went through the four stops along the way where it was true that they didn't see him and that was sorrowful and then they did see him and that was joyful and it was true at every point along the way. His resurrection, the sending of the Spirit, when these believing men die and they are with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord, and at the glorious return of the Lord Jesus. And I didn't present it that way last week because I couldn't figure out what the meaning was. And so it's like, well, you know, throw all four possibilities out there. You choose whatever you think is the best one. That wasn't the idea last week. The idea is that his going to the Father includes all of that. It's a whole series of events that's set in motion. So would there be joy at the resurrection? Yes. Would there be joy 47 days later at the sending of the Spirit? Yes, more so. Would there be joy in the presence of Christ when these men die? Absolutely, more so even. And would there be joy, at the, will there be joy at the return of Jesus Christ? Yes. There will be an age ushered in by the second advent that will be a time of unending joy. All of that set in motion by Jesus' going to his Father. Okay, so this whole section is designed to prepare these men for, I'm going to use a new phrase now, you could say for going to his Father, or let's, let's talk about it this way, getting, get, getting, getting them ready, preparing them for the day of Christ. And let's just use that phrase to encompass all of that. The resurrection, the ascension, the sending of the Spirit, the return of Jesus, the day of Christ's exaltation. That is what he's talking about when he says, I'm going to my Father. We're talking about the days of his humiliation being over with and the days of his exaltation commencing. And so, this passage is preparing them for the day of Christ's exaltation. The day of Christ. He knows that right now, these men are laboring with troubled hearts as they anticipate this. He desires that they would be filled with joy. And so, he tells them at the end of verse 22 that they're going to be joy. There's going to be joy. A joy that no man can take from you. And then in verse 24, he again speaks about joy. A fullness of joy, that your joy may be full. 
And between those two statements about joy, at the end of 22 and the end of 24, you have two reasons that they can have joy in the day of Christ. And they're there in verse number 23, in the first part of 24. And so I want to label this, reasons for joy in the day of Christ. Two reasons for joy in the day of Christ's exaltation. We are living in the day of Christ. Christ has obediently died. He has risen again. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. We still await His glorious appearing, but that return is certain. So, what reasons do we have for joy in the day of Christ in which we live? This passage is going to give us two. We could enumerate all kinds of past, all kinds of reasons for joy. We can we can make a list tonight together. We could probably come up with twenty-five. The Holy Spirit is going to take of that list, and he's going to single out and underscore two. Two reasons for joy in the day of Christ. They're both in verse 23. So before we get into the meat of this, I really need to just let you, we need to look at verse 23 together. You need to put your eyes on verse 23, and there's something that needs to be explained here. Verse 23, the key to this verse is to see a definite division between the first sentence and the second sentence. It would have been helpful if the verses would have broken in the middle, but they're in one verse. But that period after the word nothing is a a break. And we know this two ways. First of all, you have the verily, verily in the second line, which always introduces something new. That verily, verily, I say unto you. He underscores something, starting something new, a new theme. But then the thing that really needs to be pointed out, which you wouldn't be able to know unless I told you, is that the word ask at the beginning of the verse and the word ask later on in the verse are different Greek words. They're different. They're not the same word. And so you've got to keep those two asks different. And we'll get into that in a moment, and I'll explain to you the difference, and that will help things fall into place. But I want you to see, here at the outset, verse 23 gives you both reasons for joy. The first reason for joy, this is going to sound strange, but here's the first reason for joy, that in that day you're not going to ask me anything. So there's one reason for joy. And then the second reason for joy is the answered prayer promise that is at the end of verse 23. Now, here's how the, how's how the passage breaks down. That first reason for joy, in that day you shall ask me nothing. He's going to cycle back to that in verse 25. Verse 25 is the explanation of the first sentence of verse 23. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time comes when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I'll show you plainly of the Father. Therefore, you won't have to ask me anything. It's going to be plain. And that's the reason for joy. Plain truth. 
No more need for follow-up clarifying questions. It'll be plain. And then the other reason for joy, which is the rest of verse 23, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. He's going to cycle back to that and explain more about that in verses 26, 27, and 28. So you've got the statement of the two reasons for joy, and then cycling back for more interpretation of the two reasons later. The past, this little passage is cyclical, like most conversations are. Our conversations aren't always linear. A lot of times we cycle back to former themes, former subjects. That's what Jesus is doing here. And so our theme this evening is reasons for joy in the day of Christ, and we've got two points. And the two things that Jesus wants to tell these men so that they realize the expediency of his going to the Father is that you're going to have joy because of plain truth and because of answered prayer. Two reasons for joy in the day of Christ. All right, so ironically, this first point that we're calling plain truth is the difficult one. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? Plain truth, but here's the difficult point. The difficult point. And so I pointed out to you that in verse 23, that first word ask is a different word than the other ask. Okay, so the second word ask, sometimes it's good. You know, when I'm talking about this, I actually, I just put my finger right on the word as I talk about it to keep myself, you know, organized in my mind. It might be good for you to put your finger on the word whatsoever you shall ask. That's the word I'm talking about. Okay, this word is the normal word for praying, for petitioning, for making a request. The same word is used in verse 24, ask and you shall receive. But the first word, ask, in that day ye shall ask me nothing. That word is a word which means to inquire, to ask clarifying questions, to seek more information. The second word is a word for prayer, petition. But the first word is for seeking more information. They've used this word up in verse 19. Jesus said, do you inquire among yourselves? And that's the same word that's that word ask in the beginning of verse 23. Inquiry. So the statement is predicting a time when the disciples will no longer need to seek information from Jesus. It doesn't mean they won't pray. It means they won't need to ask clarifying questions. In that day, in the day of Christ's exaltation, when I go to my Father, the truth will be so full and it'll be so plain that you will not need to resort to asking me questions or seeking clarifications. So Jesus is in effect saying this, your mode of obtaining knowledge is going to be different from here on out. And the extent and the accuracy of your knowledge is going to be greatly increased. You know that how it's been, he says to these men. How it's been is that whenever you're at a loss, and you are often at a loss, you've come to me. 
and you've asked questions of me, and you've sought information from me. Things like, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Questions like that. In a little while, I go to the Father. And you'll no longer need to ask me clarifying questions like that. I won't be here in bodily form for you to ask questions like that. But more importantly, you just won't need to. You will not find it necessary to ask those kind of questions from me. Now, why will that be the case? Can you think about the whole context, especially of John 16 and the last several weeks of our being together in this passage? Why would it be the case that when Jesus goes to his Father, the truth's going to be so plain that disciples of Jesus will not have to ask him any more clarifying questions and make inquiries of him? What is it about the exaltation of Christ that results in plain, full knowledge of the truth? It's the sending of the Spirit to guide these men into all truth. And when we talked about verse 13, howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Remember how we clarified that. We're not talking about subjective hunches and the Spirit whispering in your ear type of nonsense. We're talking about the revelation and inscripturation of the rest of the New Testament canon. We're talking about the full body of Scripture, the inspiration of the epistles that will make the truth plain. The whole of the Christian faith is not contained in the words of Jesus in the Gospels. The Gospels are not meant to be read isolated from the rest of the New Testament. The function of the epistles, the letters, is to apply and to enlarge upon the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. And you ought to read the Gospels with a constant reference to Acts and to the epistles. That's the way to come to the full understanding of the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus elaborates on this fully over there in verse 25 when he goes and he cycles back and explains what he had just said. In verse 25, he admits that I often spoke to you in parables. That word proverbs, or it could be translated parables, is just veiled speech, figurative language, you could say. The kind of statements that you're not quite sure exactly what he's referring to. Last week, when we were in verse 16, that was a prime example of what he's talking about here, a proverb. A little while, and you shall not see me. Again, a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to my Father. He's speaking indirectly. He's speaking without clarity. And he had to do that deliberately, often. He intentionally veils his statements. Sometimes he does that to arouse curiosity. Sometimes he did that so they could reveal truth to the disciples, but not the masses. Most of the time he did this because they couldn't bear the full weight of the truth. So he spoke indirectly. And this was especially the case when he spoke to these men about his death, about his resurrection, and about his ascension. It was in Proverbs. 
in this discourse, he speaks of his hour. He speaks of his going to the Father. The only time Jesus actually mentions the word dying, the concept of death, was in John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But even that statement, the disciples didn't get that. They would have taken that as just a truism, nodding along, okay, we get that. Yeah, it's the greatest sacrifice somebody can make if somebody die for somebody else. Okay, we get it. They had no idea the full meaning of that phrase. It was a proverb. The only time he refers to the resurrection is in vague statements about seeing them again in a little while, returning to receive them unto himself. It's it's all been in Proverbs. It's all been in indirect communication. And these men did not understand what was going on and what was about to happen. They didn't. They didn't understand where he was going. They didn't understand how to get there. They just wanted to see the Father. They didn't understand how he was going to show himself to them, but not to the world. Remember the different interjections they've made throughout this discourse. But the time's coming when the truth will be plain. And verse 25 says that he'll show them plainly of the Father. And that promise began to be fulfilled immediately upon his resurrection. When later on that morning he appears to those two men on the road to Emmaus. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures concerning himself, making things plain. For the next 40 days, he taught them many things of the kingdom of God, we're told. And Luke chapter 24, verse 45, even says this. This is after the resurrection and one of the resurrection appearances. Luke reports, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And then he ascended to his father, and he shed forth the Holy Spirit one week later. And the Spirit taught them all things, and brought all things to their remembrance. And the Spirit was sent by Christ, and the purpose of the sending of the Spirit to reveal truth was to glorify Christ. And the Spirit, we already saw, would take the things of Christ and disclose them to the disciples so that the Spirit's ministry can justifiably be spoken of in these terms. End of verse 25. I shall show you plainly of the Father. You can, he can say it that way because he's the one sending the Spirit. And all the Spirit's doing is taking the things of Christ and disclosing them to the disciples. So there's their first reason for joy. The potential for plain truth. No more Proverbs. Plain truth. And that's a reason for joy, not just for these men, but for us as well, isn't it? You and I are not the poorer because we live after the ascension of Jesus. We're not the poorer for it. You and I are the richer for this. 
to have the completed 66 books of sacred scripture, to have the illuminating ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit, to have the accumulated knowledge and experience of Christ's church for two millennia. We are so highly favored and we have exponentially more than anyone had in the days of Jesus' earthly life. Not to mention all those people who lived during the 4,000 years prior to his incarnation. Consider the plain truth that you've been given. And what you want to do is deliberately turn your eyes to that plain truth in all of your times of trouble too. That's what he's calling them to. Sorrow has filled your heart, he tells these men. But there's plain truth coming. And there'll be fullness of joy because of it. So that means in all of your time of trouble, you deliberately turn your eyes to plain truth of God's word. That's what Jesus is doing here. These men are troubled now. They're going to be utterly devastated in a couple hours. But he says, trust me, trust me in the meanwhile. By faith, consider that this is for your benefit and this is for your joy. A time is coming when the truth will be plain. And that time is now. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them, by, for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. That's the first reason for joy. Plain truth. And the second reason for joy, beginning with the verily verilies in verse 23, is answered prayer. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Now, you might be tempted to say, how is that a cause for joy in the day of Christ? Because that's not real, a real big deal. People have been praying to God ever since the days of Adam and Eve's son, Seth, when men began to call on the Lord. And God's been answering the prayers of his believing people for the entirety of human history. So why single this out now as a special cause for joy and attach it with Jesus going to his Father? Hasn't this always been the case? Well, you think about the difference now compared to before. You think about the fact that you have a mediator in glory. The God-man who has satisfied divine justice and obtained your eternal salvation. How he is seated, exalted at the right hand of the Father and he acts as your unfailing intercessor. David didn't have that. There was no incarnate God-man who had returned in victory from the battle when David was praying. And because Christ has ascended and shed forth the Holy Spirit, you have the indwelling of the Spirit of adoption, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit helps your infirmity when you know not what to pray for as you ought. 
And Daniel never really had that when he was opening his windows three times a day, praying toward Jerusalem. You have a privilege. You think about this. This struck me this week. You have a privilege that Abraham, the friend of God, never had. You have a privilege that Moses never had when he spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. You, unlike them, can pray in Jesus' name. Abraham, Daniel, Moses, David, they never once prayed in Jesus' name. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Because that's the main idea here. You see there in verse number 23, Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Well, whatever you say is the answer to that question. You have to factor in the disciples had never done it before. The disciples had never prayed in Jesus' name. He says that in verse number 24. Hitherto you have not asked anything in my name. They have never done this before. Praying in Jesus' name is only possible after Jesus goes to the Father. So it has everything to do, therefore, with the accomplishment of redemption. It has everything to do with his role as an intercessor and a mediator. And it's the unique privilege of those who live in the day of Christ's exaltation to pray in Jesus' name. To pray expecting the answer to our prayers through His mediation. On the ground of His sacrifice. By means of His intercession. That He stands, that He's seated as our great high priest. The high priest of our profession. This is the privilege of those who live in the day of Christ. This is why it's advantageous to them that he goes to his Father. Now they can pray in Jesus' name. But it's not just the privilege of asking in Jesus' name that gives us joy. It's receiving answers to the petitions that gives us joy. That's what he says in verse 24. Ask. And ye shall receive that your joy may be full. Do you believe that? Do you? Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. He has said this repeatedly in this farewell discourse. It might be good to mark these. John 14, verse 13. This is the first time he said it. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And next to that word whatsoever, you put 
14, 14, because that's the next time he says it, the very next verse. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. And next to the word anything in verse 14, you write 15, 7. Because there he says, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. And you underline what ye will, and you put next to that 16, 20, or 15, 16. 15, 16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. And then you underline the whatsoever and put 1623, and you're back where we started. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. It is a repeated promise, assuring us that every request will be granted. And it doesn't just do it one time. He keeps on saying it. He keeps on saying it all the way through this discourse. And isn't it true what Andrew Murray once said? We have become so accustomed to limiting the wonderful love and large promises of God that we can't seem to read the simplest and clearest statements of our Lord without qualifying them. Incurably skeptical of stuff like this. And someone says, yeah, well, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I'm well informed, and I realize there are qualifications. In fact, when you read those five passages, I saw them. I saw the qualifications. And a person could be smugly skeptical of the word whatsoever in verse 23. All these passages do contain instruction about how to be sure that you experience the fulfillment of this. First of all, you do have to ask. Jesus uses the word ask 20 times in his teaching on praying through the Gospels. And James 4, 2 confirms to us that our failure to receive in many instances is precisely at this point. We have not because we ask not. And you say, I have asked. Okay, have you asked according to the way that he taught? For instance, James writes, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. He that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. You can't ask doubting the goodness or the faithfulness or the willingness or the ability of the great God you're talking to. That wouldn't honor him. And then there's this in verse 24. The word ask in verse 24, it's in the present, ongoing, progressive tense of the Greek language. It's the same exact form he uses in Luke 11, where we read our scripture reading, ask and you shall receive. 
and you've heard it explained to you, literally, be asking, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Keep on asking. Start and keep it up. Be asking and ye shall receive. And our Lord often dealt with the matter of persistence in prayer, didn't he? He's not promising the Father will grant every request one time presented to him in his name. He's promising answers to persevering prayer. Be asking, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. Dear congregation, are we willing to take this promise at face value? And rather than being anxious and careful and troubled about many things, to be anxious about nothing and in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known unto God. Because Christ assuredly tells us that the peace of God will keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And amid all of our external troubles, our joy will be full as we believe him about this. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Answered prayer, the second reason for joy in the day of Christ. Praying in Jesus' name with that confidence in him, his finished work, his intercessory work. Praying expectant, confident in answers to our specific requests, persistently brought to the Father in his name. And then one more thing to show you from this passage. It's from the last three verses where things get tricky again, 26 through 28. At that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you. What is he talking about there? At first it seems like he's denying that he acts as our mediator and as our intercessor. That can't possibly be the meaning of it, though. That would overturn so many clear statements of Scripture. That can't possibly be that he's denying that he'll be our intercessor. And so what is he saying? Well, what he's doing in those three verses is clarifying that the need to pray in Jesus' name is not because of any lack of regard that the Father has toward us. It's not like the Father has to be besought by the Son before he's going to notice us. Like the Father is aloof in his transcendence and his holiness, and it takes the Son tugging on him. Look at them. Pay attention to them. Oh, oh, yes. That's not what it is at all. And it's not as if the Son's mediation is needed to induce the Father to love us. The next verse makes it very clear. The Father himself loveth you. We're not talking about, I love you. He's kind of indifferent. But don't worry, I'll be there. I'm at his right hand. You ask him my name. I'll talk him into it. That's not what's going on. He loves you too. It's not that the Father has to be coerced into hearing our prayers. It's not like Jesus is extorting blessings from the Father that he's reluctant to give out. 
Father loves us. And he's ever ready to minister to our welfare and to suit a blessing to every one of our needs and to watch over us with his fatherly care. The Father doesn't love us because the Son intercedes. The Son intercedes because we're the special objects of the Father's love. That's the way to think of it. And what a blessed word that is. And how that ought to, how to confirm to us the joyful privilege of it is to pray in Jesus' name to a Father who loves us through a Son who loves us, has accomplished our atonement. So is your heart troubled? Are you like these men, bewildered and disappointed and unsure? And is joy the furthest thing from your mind as you contemplate your present circumstances? Consider that in the good providence of God, You live in the day of Christ's exaltation. And because of that, you have been promised plain truth and answered prayer. And let your heart rejoice in what Christ has done for your soul. Let's pray. O Lord, our gracious God and heavenly Father, We thank Thee for these reassuring and comforting words from our Savior. And we pray for faith, faith to believe what He has said, to take His word at face value, and to be more persistent and more believing and more specific in our requests. And how we praise Thee for the tremendous privilege of praying to Thee in Jesus' name on the ground of all of his finished work, through the mediation of his priestly role, by his intercession, in his name we pray and look expectantly unto thee. Amen.